0: So there's this story that I love, it's about Mother Teresa and it's about chocolate. Mother Teresa lived in Calcutta for the whole of her adult life, but she would travel to other parts of the world to places where her sisters were, where the missionaries of charity lived among the poorest of the poor. And one day Mother Teresa was preparing to go to Ethiopia and she told the poor children that she knew in Calcutta that she was going to go to Ethiopia to help other children. And these children who she knew in Calcutta were poor. They were the children of garbage pickers and beggars and day laborers. But even though they had practically nothing, they started coming to Mother Teresa with what they did have, with little bits of money or with pictures that they had drawn, because they told her they wanted to help in her mission to help the poor children of Ethiopia. So one boy came to her and he had clutched in his fist this like melty hunk of chocolate. It was the first time that he had ever gotten chocolate. He got it from a bigger kid, and he hadn't even tried it. He'd never tasted chocolate. But he heard about Mother Teresa and her mission to the poor children in Ethiopia, and he brought her the chocolate. And he told her that he wanted her to give it to a child who needed it more than he did in Ethiopia. Mother Teresa could never hang on to a piece of chocolate again. After that, every single time she had a piece of chocolate, she gave it away because she thought of that little boy and the sacrifice that he made and the joy that giving away a piece of chocolate gave to him. And lots of people have stories about Mother Teresa giving them pieces of chocolate. Her biographer would often get a little piece of chocolate from her. Um, A helicopter pilot says the only gift he ever got from a passenger was a bar of chocolate and a miraculous medal, and they were for Mother Teresa. This week on CNA Newsroom, we are not giving away our chocolate. But... We are going to talk with you about America's favorite sweet, chocolatey goodness. We know it's Lent, but it's a chocolate episode. Stay with us.
1: You've reached the CNA Newsroom. CNA Newsroom.
2: CNA Newsroom. CNA Newsroom. newsroom.
1: Welcome to CNA Newsroom.
0: Hey, everybody. You're listening to the podcast that brings you great stories and the Catholic news that matters each week. I'm your host and CNA Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn. So you might remember that a couple of weeks ago, we sampled Trappist beer during Lent because we thought it was funny to talk about things that you probably have given up for Lent. Well, we're still doing it. And this week, we're talking chocolate. Later in the program, our producers, Kate and Jonah, visit a chocolate shop in Denver that is owned and operated by a Catholic family. Jonah will then give you a closer look at the lives of cacao farmers. But in the first part of our program, Our friend, Emily Simpson-Chapman, will read an excerpt from her book, The Catholic Table. Just a quick note, this has been edited for time. Here's Emily.
3: The Church's call to feast and the Church's command to fast are, at least in my world, two of her greatest gifts. When done rightly and done well, feasting and fasting bring the whole person, body and soul, into the liturgical rhythms of the Church. They make the liturgical seasons incarnate in our homes and communities. They also help form communities, uniting rich and poor, young and old, married and single in a common practice, eating, or not eating, as the case may be. From the first months of my return to the Catholic faith, I recognized this. It didn't require a great deal of thinking or work on my part to see the value of feasting and fasting. But what did require thinking and work was doing it right. I am a creature of extremes. I blame it on my red hair. My tendency, like many a ginger, is all or nothing. Balance, moderation, temperance, they don't come naturally to me. My approach to feasting and fasting was no exception. There was the Lent that I was a crashing, burning, vegan Mormon celiac. That was pure Emily. Feasting was trickier still. There was just so many feast days. Was I supposed to eat cheesecake on all of them? If so, how much cheesecake? Was the church cool with two pieces? What about three? Four definitely seemed like too much, but where did feasting end and gluttony begin? How did one draw the line? I had similar queries about all the days in between the feasting and fasting, what the church calls ordinary time. How, without my strict diet to guide me, was I supposed to navigate all the choices presented to me by our consumer culture? I wanted to appreciate the abundance of creation. I wanted to nourish my body and soul with God's great gift of food. I just wasn't sure how to find the right balance. I didn't find the solution to that dilemma overnight. There were no bolt from the blue revelations in churches or bookstores. I just plowed ahead, sometimes eating too much, sometimes eating too little, but always trying to approach feasting, fasting, and ordinary eating with an eye to what God wanted from me in that particular moment. And slowly, gradually, I came to see that my trying was what God wanted from me. Eating itself offered me the opportunity to learn balance. For years, I thought of eating as an opportunity for vice, for gluttony, or greed. But what I failed to grasp is that eating is also an opportunity for virtue, it's a daily invitation to flex our spiritual muscles and grow in justice prudence, temperance, and fortitude. Our consumer culture doesn't see eating this way. It wants to encourage the inner redhead in all of us and tempt us to extremes. Social media testifies to this in spades. For example, come December, my various news feeds are glutted with pictures of savory sides and tasty treats. Recipes for peppermint shortbread cookies, hot buttered rum, and sausage cranberry meatballs abound then? In January, it's all Whole30 this and Paleo that. Same phenomenon happens at Easter. One day people are waxing rhapsodic about coconut raspberry scones. The next day everyone is condemning gluten like it's the second coming of the Black Death. Food allergies and serious sensitivities always have my sympathy. But a good many of the people in my news feeds who post close-ups of chocolate almond puff pastry one day and sing the praises of eating like a caveman the next they struggle more with temperance than they do with dietary sensitivities. I get the struggle. It's mine too. We live in a culture of abundance, where bottomless baskets of breadsticks welcome us in every restaurant, 468 different kinds of breakfast cereal line the supermarket shelves, and thousands of food blogs tempt us daily with tasty treats. That abundance has made some of us sick. It has made others among us a bit rounder than we would like to be. Accordingly, the appeal of extreme diets, which promise good health and slim waistlines in exchange for eliminating whole categories of food, is understandable. Sometimes the way of total abstinence just seems easier and safer, which it may be, but it's also rarely sustainable or enjoyable. This is why exercising virtue when we eat matters so much. Every day, each of us must repeatedly decide if we will eat with justice, prudence, fortitude, and temperance. In the face of our appetites, our emotional needs, personal preferences, and an abundance of food, each of us has to choose the good for our body and soul, and then do the good for our body and soul. Justice is the first and most foundational virtue for healthy, happy, balanced eating. A just man wants to give God and his neighbor their due. He wants to treat both God and man as they should be treated. He also wants to treat himself justly. He wants to give himself his due. In the realm of eating, justice helps us want to eat right. It is the habitual exercise of the will that makes us prefer vegetables over Twinkies, water over soda, and salmon over Spam. It also makes us want to eat the right amount of food and not be wasteful so that we don't gorge ourselves while others starve. Lastly, it helps us want to give God his due by obeying his command to fast on fast days and to feast on feast days. In essence, justice helps us will the good for our body and soul. Prudence is the virtue that guides our thinking as we pursue that good. It enables us to discern our true good in every circumstance. So it's prudence that helps us recognize that an apple is a better snack than a hot pocket. It's prudence that helps us understand that we should eat a little more than normal when we're pregnant or nursing. And it's prudence that dictates we eat broccoli, not just a plate of plain pasta, at dinner time because we really do need to eat our vegetables. Prudence also can show us that it's unwise to eat when we're bored and wise to eat before we take a test. It can help us recognize the good of treating ourselves to a celebratory meal when we get a promotion at work and the bad of eating a pint of Ben and Jerry's when our boyfriend dumps us. Fortitude is what helps us make those wise, healthy choices, not just on one day, but every day. It's the virtue that ensures firmness in difficulties and constancy in the pursuit of the good. It also strengthens the resolve to resist temptations. So fortitude helps us choose the apple, not the hot pocket, for our snack on Monday, and then again on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. It helps us drink eight glasses of water and eat several servings of vegetables daily, not just once in a while. And as a matter of routine, it helps us walk past the cookies, coffee cakes, and other tasty treats our coworkers bring into the office. Essentially, fortitude is the virtue that makes our commitment to healthy, balanced eating more than a flash in the pan. It makes it a way of life. Last but not least, temperance helps coordinate all of those other virtues and enables us to practice moderation in all things. So it's temperance that tells us it's okay to have one cookie after lunch, but not four. One piece of cheesecake on a feast day, not two. One dirty martini at night and no more. It's also temperance that tells us the Lenten fast of bread and water is not a good idea for a body not used to fasting or for a busy mom who needs to take care of her family. And it's temperance that tells us it's good to avoid fast food and preservatives, but that an occasional run through McDonald's isn't going to kill us. The virtues and eating operate like a two-way street. The benefits flow in both directions. Exercising our virtues when eating helps us eat well, navigating seasons of feasting and fasting, and make wise choices every day. The virtues also help us maintain the right perspective on food, valuing it and our bodies neither too much nor too little. When we focus on virtuous eating rather than clean eating, low carb eating, organic eating, or paleolithic eating, we learn how to nourish our bodies and souls for a lifetime and beyond, not just for 30 days or 30 months or however long some dietary trend lasts. In turn, eating well helps us become more virtuous. It's a daily workout for our souls where we learn to act justly, discern wisely, do the good in the face of strong temptations to do otherwise and practice balance, all the while learning to see God's generosity and love in every bite of food we eat. Ultimately, using our virtues when we sit down to eat makes us free. Free to eat, free to cook, free to enjoy the shared community that flourishes best around a meal. It helps us to want the good, know the good, choose the good, and do the good. It's not trendy. It doesn't always make for the pithiest tweets, but... It does make for some mighty fine eating, with none of the accompanying guilt.
0: In our next segment, CNA producers Kate and Jonah visited Stargazer Fine Chocolates in Denver. They specialize in dipped chocolates, coffee, and truffles. Kate and Jonah brought some truffles back to the office after this interview, and um, they were very good. Here's Kate.
2: Stargazer Fine Chocolates has been open for about a year and a half, but it all started decades ago with the D'Onofrio family's love for chocolate. Here's John D'Onofrio.
4: I always gave chocolate for Valentine's Day and Easter to my kids from when they were literally after they're born and it was okay to give them chocolate. And then we had grandkids and we started that tradition.
2: John's daughter, Karen, is the master chocolatier here. But before she got started in chocolate, Karen was studying for a master's in theology from the Denver-based Augustine Institute.
5: The Easter that I graduated, my dad went to buy Easter bunnies at the chocolatier we had always gone to. Um, he said he was retiring, so we panicked. So are, where are we gonna get our chocolate from? What are we gonna do? Um, so we kind of toyed around the idea with, of buying his shop when he retired. And that didn't work out, but I did work with him for a couple months when I graduated because I didn't have any job or plan or anything like that. Um, So I worked with them a few months and I really liked the chocolate and we decided to build our own business from that. They first began producing chocolates
2: from their kitchen. They'd give samples of chocolates to friends and family and ask for honest feedback. And the feedback was always really good. Within time, they moved to a commissary and then to a kitchen at a local parish, where the family sometimes produced chocolates to raise money for the parish school. Then last year, they opened a storefront off 7th and Colorado Boulevard in Denver, nestled between a popular brunch spot and a Trader Joe's. Originally they thought to call the shop after their last name, but then Karen had another idea.
5: So I really wanted to name it after St. Joseph, he's our patron of um, workers, and we're a small business, and I I have a, a devotion to him. So I looked up names of lilies, and Stargazer is a type of lily, and so we all really like the name Stargazer because it also is kind of dreamy and romantic, and it just has the feel of eating chocolate and enjoying life.
2: The family is definitely enjoying life running Stargazer Fine Chocolates, and it's still a family affair. Karen makes the truffles and creates new flavor combinations. Her brother dips all the pretzels and Oreos. Her father coordinates the business side of the shop and is an eager taste tester. And her mother is what Karen and John describe as the glue of the shop. Even Karen's nieces and nephews hope to work in the shop someday soon.
4: They're the staff of the future, okay? They love working on the chocolate. We'd love to have. have... You have to watch it, right, it may, may pop a few in their mouth. But we're looking forward to a third generation in a relatively short time, and it's pure joy.
2: Stargazer Fine Chocolates has made a name for itself through its chocolate creations. But John and Karen pride themselves on their hospitality, which they believe is an extension of their Catholic faith.
4: So this has become, and, and I'm not the one that coined this word, but someone came up to me one time and said, this is a fascinating ministry you have of your faith. And I said, what are you talking about? He said, you're reaching out to people. You're reaching out in a different way. You're bringing people together. And you'll notice that you don't see anybody in our shop on a computer. They're visiting. They're talking to each other. And if they're not going to talk to anybody, I will talk to them. I think that the most important thing to me is putting your faith into action. Okay? And I did not get a degree in theology. In fact, Karen has taught me many things that I didn't know uh, about my religion okay after many many years but just being kind to people watching someone struggling to get in the door and dashing over to help them not to sell them anything but just to be kind to them we have people uh, we're just outside of snooze here and there's a lot of people standing in line and you'll find an older person that or somebody with limited mobility and they'll be standing out there and I'll say come on in well I don't really want to buy anything I didn't ask you to buy anything I asked if you'd like to sit down and I said, and don't worry about it. And that's just, there's so many opportunities to be kind to people. And I think it's kind of where it all starts. And I know that sounds maybe a little bit corny, but it's really just reaching out to people. And we have so many opportunities here.
2: Another extension of their faith is how they treat their employees.
5: I think that's part of our faith, too, is that the people we hire aren't just people that work for us. We really care about them, and we really make them a part of our family. So everybody, when we say family-run, like technically, sure, they're not part of our family, but they really are. And we, everyone that works for us, we want to be part of our family. And it's not just a, a business. It's not just work. It's really a whole lifestyle.
2: They pay above minimum wage, and they offer health insurance to their employees, which is sometimes uncommon with a shop their size.
4: People say, you can't do that with this kind of a shop. If I can't do it, then I don't want to do it at all, because I want people to feel like they can be comfortable, and it makes a difference to a lot of these folks.
2: You can find this Catholic approach not only on the front end of their business, but also on the back end. They get all of their chocolate from a fifth-generation, family-run company out of San Francisco. And all of their chocolate is fair trade from places including Ghana, the Ivory Coast, Nigeria, and Indonesia. So we
5: know that our chocolate is coming from a place that um, it's grown far away and I probably won't ever meet these people, but I can feel good that I know that they're also being treated well. And then they're working with a family company and then we buy our chocolate from their, their family and it comes to ours and we give it out to yours. So I think the tracing our business the whole way from the source of it all the way to to who we're selling to is really important. So I
2: got to visit Stargazer Fine Chocolate with our other producer, Jonah, and that's actually where we did the interview with John and Karen. They gave us a tour of the shop. And after hearing about their family's longtime love for chocolate and Karen's particular creativity with flavors, we couldn't resist trying just a couple of truffles. For the podcast, of course we started off with the orange habanero truffle.
5: So it's a layer of orange pat de fouille, which is um, kind of like a jelly, um, and then a layer of habanero ganache. So I take fresh habanero peppers and soak them in cream overnight. And then add a little bit of ground habanero and make a dark chocolate ganache. And then it's dipped in milk chocolate and then there's a little bit of crystallized habanero on top. it's so good fun to watch people eat because it takes a second for the habanero to catch up so at first it's very sweet it's the orange up front and you're like it's not that spicy i thought it'd be spicy oh there it is
1: that is literally so good like the the crystal kind of the crystalline is so like Mm. really nice texture
2: next the mimosa truffle
5: so it has orange puree and then um champagne and it's it's kind of a concentrated form of champagne and it's a white chocolate ganache on the inside and then dark chocolate on the outside and it has the fun bubbles to decorate it so you get that little bit of a idea of champagne
2: i can taste the champagne i love how creamy it is is this a pretty popular flavor for
5: you yes yeah i think especially being next to snooze a breakfast place people come in and are like oh mimosa like it, it it fits with the mood of our neighbors
2: then the passion rum truffle.
5: So it has passion fruit puree and then rum, and then also honey. So the passion fruit is actually pretty um, sour, so the honey makes it a lot sweeter, and then the rum.
2: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's tangy, but sweet.
1: It's super flavorful and seems like really juicy, like it's a passion fruit, and it almost feels like it's Mm -hmm. like you're biting into a juicy piece of fruit.
2: And finally, we tried one of Karen's favorite truffles, the London Fog.
5: So it's earl grey tea, steeped in cream and a vanilla bean, Um, then it's milk chocolate, and it's in the shape of a little cup, so it's super cute, Um, and then it has a little sugar on top, um, kind of like a a sugar cube in your
1: tea. Yeah, the tea flavor is subtle, but it's so good. Yeah, and you you know
5: what earl grey tea tastes like, you know that it's there, it has that distinctive flavor, but then it's mostly chocolate.
2: While we finished up our interview, a mom came into the shop with her son and she helped him pick out a couple pieces of chocolate to take home. They passed us on their way out of the shop. The little boy was carrying a bag, maybe there were truffles in there, maybe a chocolate Easter bunny, or maybe a chocolate egg, and he had a big smile on his face.
4: That is the joy right there. That little gentleman, okay about four or five years old let's say. That, I get up usually, I don't want to interrupt our interview, but I get up and I can't wait to get over there and just share some of our chocolate with them and see the smile on their face. Uh, it's pure joy. That's of a child, and that's what we try to bring.
5: I think the great joy my dad has, he loves giving away chocolate. When someone comes in, he wants to give away all the chocolate. If he could give it all away, he would. Um, we've had to talk about maybe not giving away all the chocolate. But um, it's just spreading that joy that we have something that's, um, that people love, that's beautiful, and can bring some joy to your life. And it, it's really the human interaction, coming in and meeting us, seeing the family, and that we have joy and we, we want to pass it on.
0: Do you subscribe to CNA Newsroom? You can do so on every podcast platform, all of them. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, etc. Subscribe today so our latest episodes can be delivered straight to you. <laughs> Give the people what they okay. want. This is Carl Munderson,
1: and I insist you subscribe. <laughs> Chocolate factories have been a source of childlike wonder for generations. But behind every chocolatier producing cute bunnies for Easter stands a hardworking cohort of farmers.
6: There are actually about 14 million uh, cacao farmers all around the world. This is? Simone Blanchard. I work for Catholic Relief Services. These farmers are responsible for farming um, the cocoa beans that eventually end up as chocolate.
1: You've probably seen pictures of the cacao pods. They're shaped kind of like a football and have a bumpy, waxy skin. Farmers cut the pods off the trees by hand, break them open, and harvest the slimy white seeds inside. The seeds will be ready to send off to chocolate factories once they dry in the sun.
6: 90% of production of cacao comes from these small farms.
1: And growing cacao is no easy task.
6: It's a lot of heavy labor. They do not use heavy machinery. Um, They use, it's all picked by hand and sorted by hand.
1: 70% of the world's cacao comes from West Africa. So I called up a priest in West Africa. Hello. This is Father Ernest Kouakou
7: from uh, the diocese of uh, Abenguru in Ivory Coast, West Africa.
1: Our connection wasn't that great, but Father Ernest was able to tell me all about what it's like to have thousands of cacao farmers right there in his diocese. Much of the Ivory Coast's production of cacao used to take place in his diocese, and the country is still the top producer of cacao worldwide supplying massive worldwide chocolate makers like Nestle.
7: We still produce the cocoa, but not as much as it was in the past.
1: But Father Ernest told me that changes in the climate, as well as a low global price for cacao, have driven many of the farmers in his diocese to migrate to other parts of the country.
7: It's it's not very easy to grow cocoa. It's not very easy. It needs attention. It it it, it, It needs more attention.
1: He said many of the farmers in his diocese who used to produce cacao have branched off into products like palm trees, cashews, rubber, and increasingly, chickens. chickens.
7: We need to grow food that we eat, <laughs> you know. People grow uh, cocoa and things, and they don't have enough to eat. We need to grow food for us to be able to, 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 to nourish ourselves.
1: The price of cacao on the global market has historically been low, meaning despite international efforts to make their lives better, most cacao farmers still live in poverty.
7: Can you, can you imagine?
1: For a it's a little hard to hear him at this point, but he says it's hard to imagine working hard all year and yet still not having enough income to afford medication or education for their children. This is the life of a cacao farmer in Father Ernest's diocese.
6: More than two-thirds of uh, cacao farmers are still living below the poverty line.
1: Simone again.
6: The priest was right. Um, You know, the price of cacao is still not meeting the needs of the people that we need most (laughs) in order to have chocolate, and those are uh, cacao farmers. It's hard for farmers to make a living um, just on cacao.
1: Another problem that's been reported in the cacao industry for a while is the use of child labor on some of these farms. And although this is a huge problem, Simone and Father Ernest both made the same point.
6: These are smallholder farmers. They don't have the money to hire laborers, so their children work on the farm. And most NGOs and um, other players agree that that is okay as long as children are not handling machetes to cut off the cacao, as long as they're not exposed to harmful pesticides and fertilizers that could hurt them, and as long as their work is not preventing them from going to school.
1: CRS is helping cacao farmers in South America right now.
3: In Nicaragua, um, we are on year five of a project there um, supporting um, cacao farmers.
1: This is Brenda Hernandez. And I
3: am a project support officer at CRS for the Latin American region. We support about 5,000 farmers in that in that program, the um, introduction of fertilizer or, or various techniques.
1: You're probably wondering, is there anything you, the consumer, can do to help these farmers? You probably heard of Fair Trade Chocolate. But how does buying fair trade actually help the cacao farmers?
6: There's a couple of components that go into fair trade certification, um, but one is price. So there's always a minimum price, and actually Fair Trade International just raised its minimum price on a metric ton of cacao.
1: This helps to ensure the farmers are getting a decent price when they sell a ton of cacao, as well as a little extra they can invest back into their community.
6: It provides, I think, consumers with, with a guarantee that farmers um, we're, were paid a fair trade price, were, we're paid a premium, um, and that have access to long-term contracts and to financing.
1: Simone says standing up for the rights of workers is a part of being Catholic.
6: For me, it's great to be Catholic because we have such awesome teachings that really inform um, and are relevant to our daily lives.
1: Pope Leo XIII wrote an encyclical on the rights of workers in the late 1800s, for example. Pope Francis talks a lot about this too.
6: We need to be able to do meaningful work to really feel the, um, the innate dignity that we all possess. And so um, when that um, work is taken away or the, um, the situation that we're working in is unjust, um, it really eats at our dignity.
1: So when you buy your Easter candy this year, it's worth remembering and saying a prayer for the farmers who made it possible.
6: Um, I just looked up the statistic um, from the National Confectioners Association and actually this year about 90 million chocolate Easter bunnies are going to be produced and sold. 90 million.
7: (laughs) Maybe the cocoa that we're eating were from my country.
1: (laughs) For CNA Newsroom, I'm Jonah McKeown. that's it for
0: this week's episode of cna newsroom guys next week is the last full week of lent and yes we are definitely going to talk about something that if you didn't give up for lent you should so don't miss it cna newsroom is a production of catholic news agency a service of ewtn news i'm your host and cna's editor-in-chief jd flynn we're produced and edited by kate vike and jonah mckeown our executive producer is kate vike Special thanks this week to Stargazer Chocolates, Emily Simpson Chapman, our friends in the Ivory Coast, and at Catholic Relief Services. I am out of here. Give me a butterball. (laughs)